Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Deborah Smith. Deborah Smith is the co-founder and CEO of the CenterCap Group LLC and heads the firm's strategic capital mergers and acquisition and execution efforts. Prior to forming the CenterCap Group, Ms. Smith was the co-head of M&A and senior managing director with CB Richard Ellis Investors. Ms. Smith has worked on mergers and acquisitions with Lehman Brothers, Wachovia Securities, Morgan Stanley, and she has been involved with more than $100 billion of mergers, acquisitions, and restructuring transactions. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. You know, I want to start off by just commending you. I understand what the, the, the industry you're in, and we talked about this on our previous conversation. The industry you're in is led by old white guys, right? <laughs> and here you are, like you own and or work with and own a, a boutique investment bank. Is that the best way to put it? Yeah, that is absolutely the best way to put it. Let's just jump in. Tell us how you got into this space and how you like the origin story side of things. Let's just start there. Sure. I'll, I'll work a little backwards. Uh, we started the Center Cap Group in 2009 in the great financial crisis. We can debate whether that was a good or a bad idea. Uh, it's good because we're still here. Bad, I think it could have been a lot easier if we started in a different time zone than what we did. But in any event, we did. And it was on the back of a belief that there wasn't enough advisors in this space who understood real estate the product itself, that there were many banks and we were covered by many when we ran CB's global M&A effort. And we felt a lot of them were much more transaction oriented. They were very uh, high level in their approach and didn't approach it from the buy side. And, and we were approaching it from the buy side. We had just come from the buy side. And so we were making investments and deploying investors' capital on their behalf and so the decisions we made had real consequences. And so we wanted to leverage that expertise and our view of the world in a different way. And so we began the Center Cap Group. You know, and coming into that time, pre-CB, we had, had worked at Lehman Brothers on, on essentially retransactions in the public markets. So with that background too, we didn't feel we could move into working with REITs on our own, A, because we didn't have a balance sheet. And B, the, the public markets were doing horrendously poor during the great financial crisis. So we ended up going onto the private side instead and focused on capital raising uh, in the private context. And we focused on M&A, which was started out to be owners and operators of real estate, but also investment managers of folks who managed the real estate and looked around and didn't see a whole lot of competition there. So it, let's give it a go. And, and over time, it, it has been challenging as we've grown the business for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, just a big one, we were small. We were, you know, when we started, we had no office, we had no name, we had no space, we didn't have anything. And we didn't have no resources. Uh, we were, you know, some, some women who decided to pave path our own way. And, and over time, we've grown. And every year, we've gotten bigger than the year before. 
And as I tell my partners, our business has gotten more complicated than the year before. And today now we have three different uh, business lines that capture all of our services. And, and it's great. It's, it's been, COVID has been horrible in many, many ways, but for the real estate markets, it's actually been very good um, for, for a variety of reasons. And so, which has kind of led us where we are today. And, and I would say I still love this job as much as when I started, which was fresh out of college. Uh, I'm one of the few bankers that I still know outside of my two partners that is still doing the, the same job from, you know, for 25 years. You know, I'm a huge fan of the underdog. So, uh, and, and that I think it breeds, and I'm a, I'm a big fan of starting in a, in a recession or something that, that to be in the underdog starting in a recession breeds a sense of um, perseverance and, and uh, basically toughness that will that create some pretty amazing companies. Uh, you guys are doing remar- remarkable stuff now. And a lot of that thing, you know, comes from being told you can't. Or starting and starting and having to solve things down, solve things that would would have been easier in an easier market, right? So, you yeah. know, now when the market turns and all these other guys that started in the soft market when things were wonderful, they're freaking out and thinking about shutting down. You've been there, seeing that your skin's tough on it. And you can just push right through it and move on. Yeah, and look, I think over time, you know, if I look back to when we started. And what we went through, I think we're out of our minds, honestly. We, we were totally crazy. Um, and, and I don't think we fully, I'd love to say we were, you know, super smart about starting our own firm and building it out. But it was more a case of, well, what do we need to do? If we're going to do this, what am I going to do now? And when we took in our first client, it's like, well, now I need a bank account. Now I need a company name. Now, you know, we need stuff. Um, if we're going to give this a go. And we kind of just put the milestones in front of us and progressed forward on the basis of, you know, I don't think we ever thought we couldn't succeed. I just, it, it just never crossed our mind. We, we, this is what we were doing. We'd made the decision to do it and this is how it was going to be. And, and I do think, you know, I had grown up in the utility space at Morgan Stanley and, and I do think, you know, banking has historically been very male dominated and it still is today. I, I look around at the top and I don't see a whole lot of women um, as clients that I work with or even in the banking space in our industry at all. Uh, and I think about that quite a bit, but I also look around in the market and realize that, you know, as a result, sometimes we win deals, sometimes we won't, but we've had to, to earn it and to do it on our own merit. And, you know, we started this firm in our 30s and we've had to do it on the back of our own merit and be smarter than everyone else, work harder than everybody else, have better ideas than everybody else in order to succeed. And, you know, I don't think either one of us were born entrepreneurs. Uh, I'm, I'm a banker and I have figured out how to build a company and how to run a company and, you know, to, to get us to where we are today. And it's been quite a journey, but there's been plenty of times when I've thought, oh my gosh, I have no idea. I, I didn't know how to do that or I never even thought about it. And, but it's there and it's in front of me and I just got to get it done and I just got to figure it out. It's interesting is uh, in the real estate space, I had a, a friend of mine who uh, she started her own brokerage and the, and that's kind of the, what I call the good old boys club here too, right? If you're not one of the top, uh, all the top, um, you know, brokerages here were traditionally owned by old white guys, right? And here's a, here's a, a young woman, you know, probably at this time, probably in her thirties, forties, um, 
starting a brokerage and was playing against the field. When she started getting some traction, they were giving her a hard time. I owned a real estate company that had quite a few listings, a, a little investment group. And uh, so I called her up and said, hey, switch, uh, uh, you know, switch over to be your own broker and get out of underneath that. You know, the brokerage is giving you a hard time and I'll give you 37 listings tomorrow, you know. <laughs> And uh, that caused the way. So I'm a huge fan of that. I love, I love it. Let's talk a little bit about like how real estate plays in the mergers and acquisitions. You know, there's, there's a, I know at my level, which is a lower level, uh, you know, $15 million low, lower deals is the kind of the circle I fly in uh, and, and the people I work with do the same, but it, it real estate plays a role at that level all the way up to, you know, the billion dollar deals, companies own assets, companies own real estate, um, let's talk a little bit around how does that play and what does it change? We were talking some before we hit the record button. Um, let's kind of rehash what we did there. Sure. So real estate, I mean, there's two kinds, it gets bifurcated into two kinds of worlds. There's the folks that actually own the property themselves and their earnings as a result come from cash flow from the properties from NOI. And so then you're in the world of if it's a collection of assets, then you're looking at cap rates and you're looking at NOI trends. And, and that's if you own the, the real estate, which is how REITs operate and how, you know, family offices or estates operate as well. And there's that value embedded. The value of the company comes from the embedded of the assets you have. And then we can have an argument around platform value and the value of the management team, et cetera, on top of that. When in the investment management space, which is where we spend a lot of time as, as well as that world, it's the investment manager can manage $5 billion of real estate, but they don't own it. They just manage it. And what they're doing is they raise institutional capital and then they own a small piece of it. And then all of their earnings is coming from fees, whether it's asset management fees, property management fees, uh, could be acquisition fees, disposition fees. It's all fee stream. So as a result, the value of their earnings is actually from fees. It's not from NOI at all. And so when we talk about the bigger managers that are out there, that that's, what, that's how we're valuing them is we're looking at those fee streams and they trade off multiples a lot of the time on their earnings, which is different than when you talk about cap rates for real estate properties, right? So even though they're both touching the real estate, it all comes down to how much of it that they own of that real estate. And then if they're getting fee streams from it that have a value that's attached to it. And then those fee streams, similar to cap rates, where a cap rate is based on the quality of the cash flows. If you have stronger cash flow, it's a lower cap rate. It's the same concept in on the investment management space that the bigger they are, the more stable their fee streams are, the higher the multiple they will command if they're looking for an exit strategy. So it's, it's very different because a lot of people, when they think of big, massive investment managers and they have billions of dollars of assets, it's quite possible that a company has is managing a billion dollars of assets and is barely breaking even. And, and that's what's really interesting. When you get down into it, you just have to look at where the value for the company is coming from, whether it's coming from the asset or whether it's coming from the services that you're providing to manage those assets. You know, we talked a little bit about... Um like uh, family offices and private equity groups that have accumulated a, a huge mass of uh, uh, real estate or uh, hard assets like that. And how you guys are you know, in the past or currently 
uh, can take those and move those into, you know, a, an asset of their own under an investment, you know, uh, manager. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, it. We're, we're, we have been talking about it for some time. And if you think about it, the concept of what we're talking about here is, is REIT roll-ups of contributing your assets to a structure and then using it for growth is in many ways the foundation of the REIT industry. And we can go through many of the REITs in the public markets, but that's where they came from. That you had, you know, you had a manager that had one property and they they own, maybe they owned half of it, maybe they owned all of it. And then there's another asset, another asset. But these are all separate into their own SPEs that it's hard to, unless you're going to cross collateralize, how do you get the value of the, of the portfolio itself that it brings, right? On the basis that one plus one is three. And how do you do that in a tax efficient way? And so a, a lot of the conversations we're having with owner operators today, and they're owning a, a, a big portfolio of assets, either on their own behalf or for usually high net worth, it's usually high net worth investors, is to contribute those assets into a REIT and you take back OP units, so it's tax efficient, and then you don't trigger any taxes until the assets are you've, you've moved them up and you switched your stock into REIT stock and sold it. And so there are very tax efficient ways now where you can take those assets, put it in a, a bigger company, use that to raise capital and to grow that business, right, in a very tax efficient way. And so it's an attractive option for folks. And as we said, the genesis of the REIT industry, it's very attractive for folks because it is tax efficient and you don't have to divest the, you still own a piece, although it is spread across a, a portfolio, you still own a piece of the assets. So one of the things I do inside of the mergers and acquisitions space is I help um, other mergers and acquisitions investors who have bought companies with considerable assets um, use the asset, the real estate, do to raise money to either pay off the business or to buy another and expand. So I'm working on a current one right now where a gentleman, I'm not saying the same names or where it's located because it's in the middle. We're in the middle of this, uh, but it's about $19 million worth of uh, warehouse space and, and manufacturing space. Um, and he bought the business. He, there's that, that real estate and we're using the real estate. He's going to sell it or you know, if the sell doesn't go through, he may refinance it, but he's going to free up the cash to pay expansion add-ons by other businesses. This seems like another way that if he held on to that and that he's, I know he already has commercial, other commercial properties, but after he has, I don't know what the minimum number is, a hundred million or more of, of these, you know, assets to take that and do what you're talking about, transfer that into some form of REIT tax efficiently. And now yes. he has another way to raise capital without totally selling the assets off and leasing them back from the uh, yeah yeah i mean we're working with a client right now where they have a, a portfolio of assets and it's held with high net worth investors but our client has has a chunk of the ownership in those assets we're going to take some of those assets put it into a REIT right because that'll be tax efficient and then we're going to use the REIT basis of assets to go out and raise institutional capital around a determined strategy. And, and you can do that. It's harder to do when you're trying to do it off this asset here and that asset there. But if I can wrap them all in the one vehicle together, and then I can use it as a basis for an institution because the institution needs to put out big chunks of capital. It can't be putting out two, $3 million. It's not enough. They have to put out larger checks and they have to see growth and they have to see a pipeline to where they can allocate that capital and deploy it into 
And that's what makes it super interesting and a really attractive way of, of how to take your, your base of assets and how to use it to create growth uh, capital for your business. Now, your, your company does a lot of stuff inside of the mergers and acquisitions space, right? I, I was looking through the list of stuff. I see like buy side advisor, uh, advisory, diverse, uh, uh, divest, I can't even speak, <laughs> divest your spinoffs and dispositions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the things we haven't talked too much, you know, when a company divests of a division or spins it off and that type of stuff. Now you helping on the sell side or the buy side of that? Yeah, we'll do both. Uh, we'll, we'll end up doing both in, in some ways as a m and banker, if you're not a buyer, you're a seller. If you're not a seller, you're a buyer. If you need one of those, you're raising capital. Isn't it the way that my world works? But yes. And so, you know, we'll participate if, um, if a company d- decides they want to uh, divest a piece of their business, if they view it as non-core or a lot of times what happens with divestages, you, you have two divisions or more in the one company, but you're not getting the value for one of them, right? Because there's a mismatch and it's usually when the businesses aren't completely aligned. And so you end up having a mismatch in your business. And so it's a case that the sum of the parts is actually greater than the whole. And it may make sense to divest that that business from underneath your broader corporate umbrella. I mean, it, there's a lot goes into it. You know, it's whether your business can stand on its own without it, right? Uh, but again, it's a it's a way to monetize, and then you can take those proceeds and then use it to to deploy them in something else that can generate higher proceeds, a higher return for the broader company as a whole. So yeah, we've I, done that. We uh, go ahead. I was gonna say I see it a lot in the tech space where a tech company buys a you know another tech company. They bring in the technology, they bring in the uh, the engineers to work on some of their problems, some of the intellectual property they hold on to, but the core product that that company owned that they bought doesn't really fit. So at some point they divest that, they sell that off to somebody else and uh, you know they hold on to the patents they want to hold on to and they got what they needed and they got what they wanted. And that, you know, that other little product, and it could be for, for a guy like me, it's a great product, right? You know, if you look yes. at a Google or something, they buy a company and it's only making five, 10, 15 million, that that's just a distraction, right? Correct. You know, so Correct. they'll spin that back off, sell it, do something else with it just because they got what they needed. They, they kept the two key engineers they wanted from it and the yep. technology that they wanted out of it, right? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, we helped a couple of years ago. Um, our client was actually an insurance company and they had a real estate portfolio and we actually acquired uh, a real estate um, a subsidiary out of a broader conglomerate where the conglomerate just decided that they did not want to be in the real estate space. They didn't want to be in the investment management space at all. The business, um, the, as a result, so they decided to divest it. And then we were fortunate enough to acquire it. We took the entire management team uh, with it and, and moved it over. But that was the concept there is that someone, you know, didn't place the value on it and, and our client did. And so it made, it was a natural transfer for it to, to be spun out and moved into our company of our client. You know, one of the things I didn't ask before the show, but you guys are based out of New York, right? We're actually, yeah. So we moved to Stanford, Connecticut, not long ago. Okay. Yeah. So we were in New York for many, many, many years. And during COVID, we were one of those firms that um, uh, that moved out of the city. Although in our case, it was not, we, we, we were more lucky than smart. We had actually decided to move out prior to COVID and we were just waiting for our space to be built out in Stanford. It's And it's definitely a case, you know, 
we it's it all um it's whether you need to be in new york um or not and i think you know over time we deemed that we didn't need to be uh, as a firm and despite the amount of uh, financial advisory firms that are actually based in new york what's become interesting as a trend not just for us but more broadly is the number of firms that have have moved um, during COVID, and if the firm hasn't moved, the management has, <laughs> and and you know they they've scattered uh, all over the country, and I think it's a general trend that we saw a little bit pre-COVID, driven by tax considerations mainly, where you have uh, firms that are, are still maintaining a location in a in a city, as Chicago or it's California, somewhere in California, New York, and but the just the price of the real estate uh, and the cost. It's, it becomes more efficient to set up regional presences in lower cost areas and lower cost cities and, 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 and bifurcate it. And, and that through COVID went a step further where the senior management is now commuting to head offices aren't in those offices anymore. And, and they've moved, I think, originally temporarily, but now have made it permanent uh, with a lot less intention of going back because as we've all seen, the, the new concept of, work-life balances and flexible work schedules and some of these impacts that COVID has, has brought to the real estate industry, a lot of those trends I think are here to stay in, in some shape or form. And the concept of going back and having a big office in a big city where everybody's coming every day, I think that model is over. And, I, and I'm concerned with the commercial real estate space because usually with commercial real estate or any real estate, you're always trying to figure out what the highest and best use of the facility is yeah. or the real estate. I think that's going to have to shift for a lot of these big office spaces, right? Just because a lot of people aren't going to come back. And uh, I, I, I don't think they should. I don't think they necessarily should come back. So, And I've seen this in some other countries where they overbuilt office space and uh, things shifted. And then they started doing like conversions of condos and other stuff out of the space. But um, what do you see as the risk to the real estate uh, market due to the shift in mentality of like where workers need to be to, to complete their job? Yeah. You know, I think out of COVID, there's winners and losers, right? And I think the market was in, becoming increasingly efficient pre-COVID um, and was due for a disruption in some shape or form. And real estate investors love a disruption, right? As long as it's not credit driven. If it's not credit driven, you know, then disruptions are great. And there will be winners, uh, those who are willing to take the risk and make bets that turn out to be right, and losers who either make the wrong bets or don't do anything, and it turns out to be wrong. And, and I think what happened with COVID, it, there's a multitude of things happened. First, it was the changes to, you know, office practices, which will are here to stay. And we can argue whether it means smaller footprints in big cities or whether you move to suburbia or whether you don't do that and you just have people now work from home, you know, two days a week and then you have shared office space. Your office becomes more like a shared office space. But, you know, you have e-commerce as a result impacts retail because more people work from home. And if, once you think about that, what happens with e-commerce and people buying online, there's a flow down effect. Because then it's like, okay, well, how does that impact boxes, retail box? How does that impact your online service providers? How does that impact logistics? Because now I have to get it to you. And then how does that impact the industrial space, right? Because then you've got last mile logistics you're worrying about. It's changes to big warehousing. Cold storage is a space that's really taken off. All these things happen as a, as a flow down effect, right? 
with those two things on top of that, you have people moving. So then you have differences in where people are choosing to live. And, and, you know, where there was a concept of, you know, maybe our entire concept of top 25 multifamily markets is due for an overhaul because those top 25 today are not the same as they were a year ago, right? We've seen Florida and Texas and these southern markets that have really taken off. Well, that's going to have impact on office, on industrial, on data centers. All of these things will be impacted as a result. Now, then the question becomes, is, you know, where they're moving, is it permanent, how the changes, how long they will last. And I think we're seeing that play out. But for us as a firm, it turns out to be great because, you know, we had, re- we had written over a year ago about the impact on cold storage industry, more than a year ago. And, and those, that, all of those messages we were talking about have turned out to be correct, um, at least in our minds, they've turned out to be correct. And, but the cold story industry is, there's a lot of interest in it, institutional interest, and there's a shortage of cold storage space. And so that's a really cool space, you know, for, for an advisor to be playing in right now because there's operators and there's capital and there's a wonderful opportunity to pair the two. So we're, we're definitely seeing that. And then, you know, we had recently published on Active Adult Living, which is a, a niche throwout space from senior housing for seniors as opposed to senior housing. And that's another space that's taking off as people reevaluate what they're doing when they become older. And for seniors who, who don't need to meal plans and are perfectly healthy and perfectly active and just don't want to own real estate, there's a lot going on in that space too. So for us, again, to be in the middle of capital looking for opportunities and owner operators who have the opportunities, it's, it's a great time to actually be an advisor right now. I get that. <clears throat> I'm intrigued by what I refer to as a, like, I, I didn't realize the butterfly effect is what they call it. When one little thing changes, it has a ripple. One little thing. Like there's a consumer butterfly effect. When consumer yes. behavior changes, it changes entire industries. Yes, so, it does. Uh, yeah, Absolutely. Was- and look, I think I saw a survey that UPS said that in this day and age, they did surveys and for a consumer who buys something and they order it before midday, it's like 60 to 70% of those surveyed think they expect it the same day. And if it's after five, they expect it the next day. Just think about the logistics that goes into that. And, right? If you order something, think how that material, it just shows up. And, and all the things that needed to happen in the industry in order for that situation to evolve, um, in order to get that product to you on your plate, right? It, and it's, it's the last mile logistics where we're seeing crazy things like, you know, putting in car parks or converting back sections of big box retailers, right? Because they don't need as much retail space. And you can use that as last mile and move warehouses out, right? In order to have the two. But it's, and similarly, I mean, we're seeing some really amazing things where technology rolls into this too, where you have cold storage facilities and, and, you know, you're renting spaces and you're renting parts of it, you know, and somehow through systems and data analytics, they can figure out which blueberries belong to which vendor, right? And that blueberry is going to that person, those blueberries are going to that person. It's really amazing the amount of data analytics um, and technology that is propelling the industry forward and to be able to manage and help manage with all these changes to the industry. And it all comes because we've got a changing consumer and it all flows down. 
So if you guys are listening to this and you're out in the acquisition mode, acquiring a logistics company or real estate that can be converted to a cold storage slash uh, last mile sounds like a, a hot field to look at. Well, there's uh, plenty. I mean, there's now, I mean, you see some of the bigger institutions, you know, even turning old dark malls where mm-hmm. the malls, because, you know, we've talked about the death of malls for years, but are converting those now to logistics or they're turning it to an industrial centers in order to accommodate the mat, you know, the gravitation towards e-commerce. And, and I think the underlying element to all of it, to all of it, if I had to pick one thing, it's COVID has um, given people a sense that they can demand convenience. It's all about convenience, right? It's about, you know, we reevaluate work-life practices and commuting to an office. Why? Well, like, why should we travel two hours to an office when I'm just as efficient here at home? What do I need to do that for? I can do two hours extra work here and do it just as well, right? And so we've learned... Through, through the last couple of years on an institutional scale because these changes aren't isolated. It's not like 15 years ago or 20 years ago where a person in a company wants a flexible work schedule. We've institutionalized these practices and that's why I think it's really difficult to go backwards. Once you've given it and people like it, it is hard to then take it away. And I think that's the market we're in and technology has allowed all of this to happen. Uh, again, I think that's going to happen with a lot of that. They found a higher and better use for the real estate to, to manage and, and, and cash flow an asset. And I think that's going to have to happen with a lot of the big office space. Um, they're just going to have to have a higher and better use for that space or, you know, uh, I, I wouldn't say higher and better because they probably were really profitable as, as office space. That's yeah. going away and it's no longer going to be a good use of the property because they're going to have a hard time filling them. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even if you think about it, so the multifamily apartment industry went through some of this change, maybe 10 years, started 10 years ago, maybe a little longer, where the demand for convenience, right, leads to amenitized spaces, right? Because people want to, you know, have access to a lot of amenities so they don't have to go far. They want access to shops and more, you know, to be able to go to parks and all these things on a localized basis. What I think will be interesting to play out now is where the multifam spaces, apartment buildings, now incorporate shared office space and and recognize that if you think who the people are that you're renting to in amenitized multifamily apartments and the value for uh, those amenities over square foot in an apartment and even the concept of having micro apartment buildings, at what point do you think about putting, you know, shared office space in those buildings? Or alternatively, you know, how about the office the office players now putting apartments in line with where their office properties are, right? And and looking at you know how much can the convenience start playing into that bridge between multifamily and office if we recognise that people aren't going to always want to commute back and forth, and and I think some of these things are definitely playing out. I don't think we have the answers to some of these things yet, but it is. You know, there's always change, and and it's again, it's just figuring out how to play that change. And and history has taught me that real estate investors are super smart. They're super smart, and and they can figure out how to navigate through this and see where the opportunities are in order to play it out. Yeah, there's a, a co-working space in uh, Dallas I really like. It's where I started my first podcast. I rented a studio from them there. And then COVID hit and none of my guests would show up because it was an in-person <laughs> one, right? So I had to retool and figure this out. 
So that's why we do it all on Restream now. I, I had people wanting to fly in and be on this other show I was doing. But um, the cool thing of what he did is what you're talking about. His co-working space is on the bottom floor, and it's pretty good size. Um, but uh, it's on the bottom floor of a huge apartment complex in Dallas, right? So yeah. a lot of the guys that I, I meet there, I was like, oh, cool. You know, how far do you commute? Oh, I live upstairs. Yeah. So, you know, they move there. They live upstairs, and they, you know, I'm kind of old school myself. I want to go somewhere, sit down. And when I sit there, I work, I have an office. My office happens to be 26 miles from my house, but that's because I live in the boondocks. But uh, I think that's a great play on some of the highest and best use for real estate. You acquire, uh, you know, if you acquire a business that has the real estate uh, around there, talking to my acquisitions and mergers guys, and all of a sudden this market changed on you. Now you're holding a big office building that you don't need the space for anymore, but you own it. And I can think of three or four, um, you know, uh, business owners that I've talked to that they bought their buildings, right? And they, they have these big office space and now they're thinking about selling them. I think it's a bril- brilliant idea to convert the, you know, top so many floors to condos and stuff like that. And the bottom two floors for co-working space, your people can continue to work some smaller footprint of what they need. And then you rent out the other office space for people that are in your, you know, or in your apartments upstairs, condos, what do you want to call it? And the nearby ones. So I think that's a, that would be a brilliant use of that. Um, Let's talk about some of the other spaces inside of this. You guys do so much. Um, Kind of what are the other trends you see going on in the market right now? Uh, We're also seeing still uh, on the, and we talked a little bit about capital raising and some of these trends and being able to get into the middle of some of these conversations. And, you know, we, we look at the world as providers of capital and users of capital. And our goal is to find the trends where the provider wants to be and make sure we have the, the opportunities that need the capital for them to deploy and help them match up and help them move forward, which it's, it sounds a lot easier than I just described it as <laughs> so I was listening to it, uh, to be able to do that. But I think in another piece of our business where we operate is on the investment management side, and it is the buying and selling of the investment managers themselves. And, and why, why are we seeing that? We're seeing that because over time, uh, there's been a couple of trends that have happened. And everyone knows the big names of Blackstone, KKR, Apollo, all these bigger guys. As, and they are alternative investment managers. You know, they've commanded such a, uh, an extraordinary amount of the capital that is, de- that is raised in the space. And so you have a bifurcated industry that's happened over a period of time. We have large guys and you have small guys. And the question is, how do the small guys become large guys, right? Because, you know, with, with any business, you get economies of scale that show up in your ability to raise capital, liquidity, valuation improvement, ability to access talent and opportunities all happen with scale, right? So how do you do that? And I think what we're finding is, you know, we typically in the past operated around the two to seven billion dollar AUM manager where we would buy or sell those types of managers. A lot of those managers got bought in in the past five or so years. What we're seeing is a gravitation of of the next generation of investment managers coming up into that space. And the questions, you know, we often get is, well, how do you compete? And then how do we make ourselves look like someone that we can raise capital, right? How do I raise capital away from these other guys? And, And I think, you know, a couple of trends that have happened. The first is managers have become um, a, a lot more focused within a sector, right? So the concept of, of being a jack of all trades as an allocator 
uh, those are fewer than what we're seeing now where they're a multifamily specialist, right? Or they're an industrial specialist. And they usually are firms that owned the real estate or used high net worth capital. And they've decided to convert into an investment manager. That's the trend. So they, and so as a result, they take those high net worth assets, they flip it into a structure and they go raise institutional capital around it. We tend to see it more on within a sector specific because then your argument is, look, I'm not trying to compete with those guys. I'm an expert at this. This is what I do super well. I build apartments. I operate apartments. I build cold storage. I operate cold storage. I'm an expert in this field. And that's why I need you to put capital into this into this space because I can deploy it and you get the time and attention and I'm good at it, right? And so then the next part is, well, okay, well, do you manage it? And that's come along with it is that if you're going to be an expert in a space, it's we see a gravitation towards also managing the real estate yourself. And, and those managers we call vertically integrated investment managers. And that's the next generation that is coming up through the, through the industry And then our goal as a firm is to look at those managers and figure out which ones uh, we think are ready for prime time that can be paired with institutional capital. Or if we think they're still a ways away, but we can help, we have a consulting business that does like market readiness, institutional scorecards where we can go in and look at a manager and determine uh, where the strength and weaknesses are from an institutional market positioning. Right. And then as well to help them look different. We've looked at hundreds of managers and to be able to look at a manager and say, look, this is what you're good at. Focus on this. you got to be disciplined. Focus on it. And to work with them to in order to that next step is we do a fair bit of work there, too. And, and the reason why it's we view ourselves as, as almost like life cycle bankers. So once we start working with a company, we like to work with them through the evolution in time. And so we value, we're very value related in terms of the relationships we have. And so a lot of our relationships today, they're long term, um, they're repeat, or they've come in through a referral from someone who is our client or was our client, right? And that just is a great business for us because we get to to see these companies grow and prosper and to to be able to play a role in that is really super cool. So- in almost any, uh, just like the market cycles and everything else, um, you know, I'm sure capital does too. Right now, do you see that there's more capital available for like dry capital, what I call dry powder, yes. sitting on the shelf looking for opportunities or is there more yes. opportunities looking for capital? No, more capital that if I had to take a guess, there's more capital than opportunities. So there's, there's plenty of capital out there looking yes. for the right opportunity. Right. Your, your job is playing the matchmaker, right? Playing, like, playing the matchmaker provides, you know, along the way, uh, you know, to, it is definitely a matchmaker role, executing through that transaction to get it done, and which is equally complicated. I often find with uh, companies that are not where the founder or the owner or is not far away from the negotiation table, it's a legacy company or, you know, it's even in the private markets, you know, people part with their companies a lot slower than they part with their assets, right? They're much more okay. They're a lot more comfortable flipping their office building than they are flipping their company that owns the office building. And, and you know, the one thing I've learned through being in this business a long time is that what people think they want and what they think their expectation 
is never the case. That's never how it turns out, ever. <laughs> and it's because once they see something in front of them, like, well, hang on a second, this doesn't work. And, and so, you know, and I'll pick an easy example. You know, whenever we sell a corporation in the private markets, um, culture is never listed as the number one thing. It's not. And you know what? It's the number one thing. It, it absolutely it is. is. It's the number one thing. It's a, and people will take like less economics in order to, to preserve it. And it's the one one reason why integrations fail is they fail to match right. culture and environment and human human beings. You're if you're buying something that's not physically just an asset, a piece of real estate with no human beings involved. Anytime you got employees, human beings, executives involved, you have to deal with the human element of that, and that's the culture, right. the environment, the management structure, the you know, communications process. All that comes into play, and a lot of people do overlook that. You know. They do. They yeah. definitely do, and you and you said it right, um, and uh, and it's, it's a lot of people miss that. But integration issues really is code for culture. <laughs> That's really what it is, and you know, and and so we've learned a long time ago that whenever we work with a client, is to tell them, look, this other side, we can run a process, and we can treat it as a transaction, and you can look at just selling it off. You can do that, but you're not going to be happy with it. You know, we tend to tailor ours. And that's what I mean by we're not just transaction oriented. It's we look at the focus on what's the aftercare or whether this transaction is going to last. Because if it lasts, they'll refer us or want to work with us again, right? And so we get very focused on this cultural aspect and making sure you like each other. You don't have to want to play softball or soccer together, but you have to have shared philosophies on how to grow your business, what you think of your team, what are the next steps? And most importantly, whether you think you can resolve differences, right? Because no company goes, no transaction goes perfectly as you plan. And you have to be able to adapt and adjust to situations. And so you need a partner that is going to work with you on those things. And those skills only come by communication and talking to them a lot. And I think I'll add to that, that the other thing that you have to communicate is opportunity. Like for individuals in the company, yeah. what is the future opportunity inside of this new entity, new, you know, thing that's happening? What's available for the individuals? Because that's the, like the old, what's the old book? Uh, Who moved my cheese? People are resistant yeah. to change, right? If they don't know, yeah. <laughs> they don't know that there's something in front of them that's uh, exciting and interesting and they have a room for growth or to learn something new and a place, a place to be. There's some safety things there, um, you know, especially in uh, different, you know, different people have different levels and needs for safety, but everybody has some need for that to know that you have a job the next day. <laughs> if that's, yeah. you know, the, if you fail to communicate that, I honestly think that uh, you that's why a lot of these big integrations, uh, they don't, they just don't make it. Yeah, and, and I, I think that's right, and which is, you know, we tend to focus on this a lot because we want them to last. And we recognize that economics is important, but governance is important, employees are important, culture is important, growth is important. And all of these things work together cohesively. And so, you know, one of the pieces of advice we give to folks when you go through negotiations, A, you should always hire an advisor. But separately, it's that all these things move together. So never let someone on the other side of the table negotiate one piece without the rest because they're all triggers to the same little piece, right? So you need to, if you tug on economics, well, how does that impact governance? How does that impact employees? How does that impact my future growth plans? All the things tying together. So we always encourage folks that if, if there are changes in terms of changes that the buyer 
or the seller both ways. One, to get the cohesive package. Give me all of them. I'm not going to address these things piecemeal. I want your whole list. And then we'll go through your list and we'll provide a cohesive response to that list. Because too many, what ends up happening is, is if it's just one thing in isolation, you think, oh, that's okay. I can work with that. Then there's another thing and another thing. And all of a sudden you end up with something that is so far away from where you originally were that it's no longer acceptable. And, and that's the, the problem. And then at that point you have to say no. And, you know, the no may be well-received or it may not be, but it's to save yourself the angst, you know, deal with all this stuff up front, um, go through it and be cohesive in your responses. hundred uh, percent agree. So, Looking at you know everything we've talked about so far, we're probably around the forty-five minute mark now. Let's let's uh, first of all let's make sure everybody knows how to get a hold of you. So I'm going to put up your. Is it okay to put up your LinkedIn profile? Sure. Absolutely. Let's double check that real quick. I'll show it. Uh, so if you if you guys are watching this, uh, it's on the screen. It'll be in the show notes if you're uh, listening online on the podcast. So it'll be in the show notes. I'll put it right there. And then for those who are driving or something like that, oh, that's mine. Oh, I almost clicked on mine. There's yours. I almost turned yours on. <laughs> I do have yours up. That's cool. For, for some reason, I thought I clicked on uh, mine. I was like, don't, don't do that. Okay. So it is Deborah Smith and it's spelled D-E-B-O-R-A-H Smith, S-M-I-T-H. And it's the LinkedIn is linkedin.com slash in the same way it is. And it's Deborah Smith hyphen center cap, C-E-N-T-E-R-C-A-P, center cap. Right. And then uh, I'm going to show them your URL for your website, too. So if you're watching, if you want to take a look at what they can do, how they how to get a hold of them or uh, want to just kind of you know do a little research on the company itself, it is www.centercapgroup.com. And I have that on the screen now. If you're watching, you see that. If not, it'll be in the show notes. And uh, uh, Deborah, how would you prefer that they reach out to you? Is that you want them just to go through your LinkedIn profile and connect? Yeah. Or? They can just go through LinkedIn. That'd be great. Okay, that'd be fine. Cool. So I'm going to leave the LinkedIn on there while we talk. It won't get in the way. And uh, let's talk. Like I said, we're getting close to the the, like the 50 minute mark. We're kind of getting in that range. Let's start talking about um, what are the three big takeaways that you want people to understand about what you guys do and what you offer, and how that can impact you know their business and their bottom line. Okay. Good question. Um, I think for us, we view ourselves as all things real estate. That's what we are. What we aren't is we don't view ourselves as a broker. We view ourselves as an advisor that works very closely with our clients to help figure out the solutions that work for them and their company to secure growth. That's what we do. And anything within that, all things real estate, whether it's capital raising, whether it's looking at what to do with your business within the real estate space, or whether you just want someone to come in and help you think about what your marketing campaign should look like, you know, whether you'd be attractive to institutions, what you would need to do in order to get to that place if you're not already, we can help with all of those things. And I think for us, we think we're the only firm that has this combination of services within the one team. And so we, as a result, we work with all sides from owner operators, REITs, property managers, service providers, you know, towards the investment managers on the other end of the spectrum. And so we marry all of those things together. And the goal for us is to be in the middle of the hourglass and to connect the two, appreciating that we look at the world from both sides. And so we think we can get a much higher quality of advice 
that's actually based on on experience, but also based on what we see and the conversations that we have with folks. So two questions for you. First of all, where can you operate? I mean, where do you guys just do New York, which I doubt, but national. National. We're national. Yeah. Okay. All, How about- yeah, all over. We can travel anywhere. Uh, our team's there, but we're we're a mobile firm. And so we can go anywhere and uh, we've done deals all over the country with managers and, and owner operators, et cetera, in all different parts of the country. What about international? Do you do anything uh, internationally or we cross, over, we cross over to Canada at some, at some times. We have not done as much internationally unless there has been a U.S. focus. And, and the reason for that is, is come back to our, this has been our market and we know our market. And when clients come to us, it's on the expectation. We know this market. And so we lean into that. I think, you know, we're, we're looking to expand overseas. And the first stop will probably be the UK. And we're having some conversations there. But if we, we work with enough folks who have a foreign presence that have offices in the US, that, you know, it's, it's time for us to be expanding outwards. But we always have to make sure we have the right team because we're very focused on our brand and what it means. And so everyone has to stand up to that quality of that brand. We have a lot of listeners that are in the UK and uh, I think Australia. I uh, have. I mean, yeah, I'd say the uh, the last big roll up project I was on, we had team members from Australia, Canada, yeah. and um, sorry, we had people coming to meetings from Canada. It was Australia, the UK. Um, I have connections that are doing deals in Switzerland and other areas too. So I was just curious on where you guys could. And then, you know, is there a, a minimum range? Like, is there a, is like you need to have so many assets under management or, or try to raise a certain number of, of money before? Uh, you, you guys work with them? Yeah, that is an excellent question. Historically, we have focused on the institutional market. And so they are bigger equity checks, the largest size companies that we have dealt with. What we have gone through over the past you know, couple of years is that we've realized that when you know the market as well as we think we do, that you see a lot of managers or a lot of owner operators who are not in that institutional class yet. But we think we can raise capital for them. We think we can work with them. And so we're looking at alternative structures where maybe we can uh, take some ownership or warrants or options or something in order for our compensation program still to work. And then we can work with them because I think what we are very good at is is finding opportunities um, that work for institutional capital. We're good at going in and assessing and saying, hey, yes, we think we can raise capital for this. We're we're pretty good at that. And so now it's time, I think, for us to say, well, we're advising these institutions. Well, why aren't we, you know, being investors or participating as well? You know, put some put some bet behind, you know, some of our speak. And uh, because there's been plenty of times where the institution has gotten involved in a transaction and it's turned out to be wildly successful and we're sitting there thinking, well, we should have participated in that. <laughs> so it was our idea. And so we're looking more at those avenues. And, and you know, we had cut them off in the past simply because of size. But now we're like, you know what? This is a great manager. This is a great operator. They have something special. And let's figure out how we can partner with them over the long term to turn them into one of these larger guys or help them grow and give them advice along the way. So, you know, and it's our firm, we can do what we like. So we're looking at different ways to structure that in order to, to more to have a wider participation in our industry. Awesome. So <clears throat> I've asked a bunch of questions. We've talked about various topics. If you could step into my shoes, 
what question would you have asked? What did I miss? You know what? I don't know. You're a great podcaster. <laughs> You're a great podcaster. I, you know, it's um, if you had have asked anything, and I don't think there's a good answer to it, so maybe this is why you didn't ask it, is uh, whether inflation or interest rates will have the greatest impact on where the real estate pricing goes next. Um, and I don't know the answer to that, right? Because historically, inflation is great for the real estate industry and historically, interest rates have not been great. But when you have both of them moving at the same time, you know, how does that play out? Um, that's going to be tough to figure out. But so far, we're not really seeing a whole lot of impact of interest rates uh, on the pricing of real estate yet. And, and I'm not sure we're seeing a whole lot on the inflation. But if, if it continues on and both of those things are happening, it's, you know, how is it going to impact the industry will be very, very interesting. So the residential markets actually typically have like, what is it, 12, that's a 15 year cycle where we, you get a bubble and you get a correction, you get a bubble. I've never really analyzed the commercial side. Is there a, there's an ebb and flow inside of the commercial side too, or? Yeah. I mean, it tends to flow again with the, with the trends of where things are, but you know, with the real estate market has been so heated, you know, since the great financial crisis, the real estate market has only gone up. <laughs> It's only gone up. And so in the what in the past that many years, 12, 13 years, folks that have been in the real estate market or entered at 12, 13 years ago have never seen the market in anything but great. And you know, over the last two years with COVID, it, it for the most part, and I know on the newspapers we folk about talk about what's going on with malls and we we talk about hotels, but but outside of those, the, the market has performed really strongly. And pricing is expensive. Things are expensive now. And so, you know, how that gets impacted with these next things will be interesting. But as a do for a correction or whether this correction will come from one of these two things, that's still playing out. We will eventually write something on this. Uh, but, you know, once we, we have a stronger handle on how things are playing. But so far, we're not seeing a whole lot of impact yet. Cool. <clears throat> what would you consider a leading indicator that that's starting to occur? Um, I think, you know, on interest rates, if, if, the, if it's perceived that it's going to last a longer time and, and interest rates will take a bite, particularly if your NOI and your earnings is not holding pace with inflation. And so as inflation, if it continues to grow and it continues to, I'm sorry, to con continues on at the rates that it's at and it continues to eat away at people's ability to pay those rents, then obviously that impact will flow downhill. Um, and so this is still, I think it's still playing out as, as we speak. So it's a little bit of stay tuned. Awesome. Well, I appreciate having you on here. We do need to, to wrap the show up and stuff. Is there any parting shots, parting, uh, you know, bold statement you want to make on the end of here? Is there anything that you want to add before we wrap up the show? Yeah, you got to take some risk. If you don't know, it's all risk reward, right? Isn't that what we tell our real estate investors? In oh, order to get the reward, you got to take a little risk. If you got to take a little risk, it means you have to be confident in, in what you think is going to play out and uh, cross your fingers and your toes and hope you're right. Well, thank you for being on the show. It was great. We had covered some great information. Hang out for a few minutes after we uh, end the recording. And I appreciate your time. Thank you. That's the show. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show. Ask questions. 
uh, suggested guests, or even tell me about a business you have for sale, and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline leave us some information. Thank you. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich, with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T I E. PM.com and check out the Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind.